the opening scenes of Mark's gospel uh, that we've read here this morning, it's really, as far as um, literature goes, kind of like minimalist theater, theater of the absurd, if you're familiar with this. There's this whole world of meaning that's been collapsed into just a few concentrated, stark images. It's like a chiaroscuro painting. If you're familiar with um, Caravaggio, he does this where there will be like one or two figures and the whole background is really dark and shadowy, but then there'll be these figures that are just bright and kind of assaulting you. That's what John is doing here at the beginning of his gospel. It's it's these vivid vignettes that are etched into this dark and obscure backdrop. There's a divine voice off stage that's calling out. And then suddenly there's a human that shows up on center stage. And this human, John, he's heralding a message. And this message that he's telling, um, you really need to think of it like an invasion. I mean, it, it's shocking. I don't know if any of you are up on fine art and literature the way that I am, but uh, um, Red Dawn, is that the name? What was the Patrick Swayze movie? Yeah, Red Dawn, they're remaking it. I don't know how they're going to do this without the threat of imminent destruction from communism. But the opening scene, do any of you remember this back in the day? Or am I the only sinner who went to... I know the Church of Christ folks didn't go to the theater at the time. But... um, there's these, um, they're like a school in Texas somewhere, aren't they? And um, the communists drop in and start killing everybody. This is what's going on in, John's, in Mark's gospel. All of a sudden, out of the blue, there is an invasion. The narrator announces this. It's like a medieval herald riding into some village, you know, with trumpets and all. And he's making this announcement that at long last, a king, a strong king is coming who is going to wrestle the village away from the powers, who's going to set it free. That's the gospel passage we heard this morning. I I wish that you and I could hear it the way Mark intended it to be heard. It's so hard because there's 2,000 years of cultural gap between us. But really, what he's doing here on a literary basis, it's like somebody throwing cold water on you when you're asleep. It is that astonishing. What he's trying to say is one thing, but what he's doing is shocking us. You've got to feel this. Now, look at the very first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You and I can't quite feel it, but this is very loaded language. This is political language. The emperors, the Caesars, they were the gospel announcers. Euangelion in Greek, they would make gospel announcements that a new Caesar has risen to the throne and everybody's going to be okay. And Mark is saying, oh yeah? This is the beginning of a different gospel, of a different announcement. Look down in verse 14 and 15. We didn't read it earlier, but after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, shouting. He's riding into the town like this medieval herald. The gospel of God saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's this strong king. And when he speaks, he's... 
He's announcing boldly the reign of God with all of its dreams of justice and love and equality and abundance and wholeness and unity. The reign of God is dawning. The very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now, the way Mark is writing in the genre of that day, this is the title of the book. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and he's, he's making a deliberate echo of another book in the Bible that starts in a very similar way. What book is that? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning. Now, Mark is writing in Greek. He would have read a Greek version of the Old Testament. The Greek word for beginning is arche, archon. And he's quote, he's using that specific word. He could have used other words for beginning, but he's using the word that is used in the very first verse of the very first book of the Bible. You know what he's doing? He's saying, look, there was a moment when the creator God of this universe made a bang and everything came out of that. And what has just occurred is just as cataclysmic. And it is just as life-giving. And it is just as much a beginning as that was. As huge, as monumental, as stupendous, as mystifying and mind-boggling as the origins of the universe are, that has occurred again. There has been a new creation. God is transforming reality on the same level... That reality was transformed when the stars and the planets and the universe was flung into existence. He's equating Jesus' birth with that. This is huge. He's throwing water in, in the face of the Roman Empire. And he's saying, you think Caesar brings stuff. You can't imagine what's just occurred. You are telling us that Caesar is the answer to our problems. No, he is not. Jesus Christ is. Keep reading. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then again, verse 14. You've got to hold these verses together. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus walks up and he says, The time is fulfilled. He's saying that, look, with my arrival on the scene, All of the prerequisites have been fulfilled. The threshold of this great future has been reached. The door with Jesus is saying with me, the door has been open. And now the conclusion of the whole drama can begin. The kingdom of God has arrived. In other words, the gospel is this. It is Jesus Christ. It's not four points about your soul. The gospel is Jesus Christ. It is his life and his teachings and his deeds and his healings and his exorcisms and his death and his resurrection. And with his life, with what he's doing, not just with his death, but with the whole life of Jesus. What he's doing is he's inaugurating, he's kickstarting a radically new state of affairs for the whole cosmos. His reign has begun. And like I said earlier, what is that? It's the kingdom of God with all of its dreams of justice and love and equality and abundance and wholeness and unity. That's here. 
in Christ. Now that's verse 1. Like I said, it's like minimalist theater. There's this whole cloud of meaning condensed into just these few short little pregnant phrases. And then suddenly, in this theater piece, we hear a voice from off stage, right? The narrator off stage shouting into the auditorium. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. As it is written. And then he weaves together three prophecies, three pieces of scripture. One from Isaiah, one from Exodus, one from Malachi. It's standard protocol of the day. You just pick the kind of superstar among the rank and you name him over all of them. But he picks three passages of scripture. He weaves them together. And you should recognize part of it from what Bob read to us out of Isaiah. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Again, look, a new way of life is being built in the shell of the old world. Prepare, get ready. There's going to be a new way. Not a new little, not a a path we're going to kind of push through the stuff, but this is a radically new whole way of existing. This is a new beginning. Just like in the beginning God created, well now once again, by the way, John started his gospel in a similar way, didn't he? In the beginning was... See, when, when the gospel writers reflected on the life of Jesus, the only thing that could come close to the power and the newness was the creation. They, they're all going there when they reflect on this. This is, and, and, and who is the I in this verse? Behold, I send my... This is God speaking to Jesus. Behold, I send uh, a messenger before your face. He's telling Jesus, Jesus, I'm sending a forerunner, a messenger to prepare the way for you. So it's like this. Behold, I, that's God, send my messenger. Any of you familiar with the story? Who's the messenger? John, John the baptizer that comes up next. I send my messenger, John, before your, that's Jesus, before your face to prepare your way. And then verse 4. John appeared, the messenger appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John, you need to get this. If you write in your Bible, you need to underline this, is in the wilderness. This is huge. There's not a single word wasted in this. He's giving two primary geographical markers for John's location. John is baptizing in the wilderness. And he's calling people out of the city, Jerusalem, out of the city, into this wilderness. To what river? The Jordan River, where he's baptizing. Again, a whole world of meaning has collapsed Into those images. You see, there was a time in Israel's history when Israel was a slave in Egypt. And when God led them out of Egypt, where did they go for 40 years? Into the wilderness. And what river did they cross before going into the promised land? The river Jordan. 
You see what John is doing? He's saying, look, God rescued you from Egypt and led you into a wilderness before he led you into the land he promised you. And now here's John standing out of the wilderness and he's calling out to the Jewish people and he's saying, come meet God again in the wilderness. Come back to this place of desolation. Throughout the Bible, wilderness is a place of desolation and solitude and isolation and loneliness and testing by God. Who else goes into the wilderness to be tested? So John is standing in the wilderness saying to Israel, come back to the place of testing. Come back into the wilderness and meet with God again so that you can re-enter the promised land. So that you can pass through the waters of the river Jordan again. What he's saying is that you're in Egypt again. You're in bondage again. You're in slavery again. You're enslaved to the demons of your own soul. You're enslaved to all manner of powers. And you need to come out into the wilderness because Jesus is preparing the way for your exodus. For you to once again escape captivity. Now this is where it gets really interesting. Okay. Stay with me here because everything has been leading up to this point. I said to you, verse 2 and verse 3 was God talking to Jesus. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. But in Mark chapter 1 verse 12, who goes into the wilderness? Has anybody got a Bible that you can follow? Who goes in the wilderness in chapter 1, verse 12? Jesus does, not John. See, it gets out of verse 8 where it's John. And now Jesus in the wilderness. In 1032, it says Jesus was walking ahead of his disciples. In chapter 14, verse 28, it says it is Jesus who will go before his disciples. And in chapter 15, verse 34, who cries out with a loud voice? Lama Sabachthani, right? Jesus on the cross. So Mark, what he's doing is a great literary artist. It's kind of like that movie, um, The Fifth Sense, or is it The Sixth Sense? What is it? The Sixth Sense, where you get to the end of it and you get some information that makes you see the whole thing different again. The first time you read Mark's gospel, it's God talking to Jesus that John will prepare the way for him. But by the time you get to the end of it, you realize it's Jesus in the wilderness calling To Israel, that he will prepare the way for them to go back to God. In other words, this is Jesus saying, only I will get Israel back to God. But there's a whole nother level of meaning going on here. I mean, it's like uh, Augustine said, the Bible's a wondrous depth. You just keep diving and diving. We don't have time to do it all now, but there are things that Mark is doing in the way he's writing where he is claiming to be God's voice. Now, as Christians, we believe that. We believe that Scripture is the Word of God. So there's a third level in which this is at work. Mark, who wrote this gospel, is being sent by God, just like John was sent to Israel, and Jesus was... God sent Mark to who? To you and me. And he is crying out. And God is speaking through Mark. And he is saying to us, prepare the way. 
Mark is being John to us. Through his gospel, we have the chance to make our path straight so that Christ can be born in our lives. So that Christ can lead you through the river to an exodus where you are free from the powers that are ravaging you. This is an extraordinary thing. That God is speaking to us that for you and me, a new beginning is available. The reign of God in your life, in our church, with all of its dreams of justice and equality and love and abundance and wholeness and unity. The reign of God is available to you. God himself is saying through Mark to you, he's holding out. The kingdom is at hand. It's here. He's offering it to you. And the king who establishes this kingdom, Jesus If you will open your heart to him, if you will make straight the path into your life, he will set you free from the death grip of the powers that are ravaging you. And just like God was speaking to Israel through John, and like God was speaking to his disciples through Jesus, God is speaking to you and me this morning through this gospel. And what is he calling you and me to do? To step into the wilderness. To step into that solitary place of testing. The place of loneliness. And so my question for the church of the incarnation, for you, is will you heed the voice of God for Advent? Will you follow Christ into the wilderness? Will you go and step into that solitary place? Will you on a daily basis for Advent set aside time to be alone with God? Because you see, solitude is the furnace of transformation. It was for Israel. It is for you and me. In other words, if you do not take disciplined time, throughout this Advent season, to step out of the hurly-burly of your life, you will not go on the journey of Advent. You'll arrive at a Hallmark Christmas. But you will not arrive at the Christmas where Christ is birthed even deeper into your heart and into this church. If you don't heed the call of John to come into the wilderness, to discipline yourself, to get still and quiet your body and your mind, you will remain a victim of our society and you will continue to be entangled in the powers. Jesus is speaking to us, not metaphorically. It is the voice of Christ this morning that is speaking to us through John Mark's gospel. And he is saying, prepare the way. Make straight paths for me to come into your heart. So my question for you is, will you do it? Will you walk into the wilderness of Advent? Or will you walk into the hurly-burly? Of a consumeristic culture that is overwhelming you and will not give you what it offers.
Will you walk into the wilderness of Advent and prepare the way of the Lord into your life? It's why we've produced the Advent devotionals. I, I hope that you've gotten a copy of one. They're on the back, they're on the, the table out there. We, this is the reason we went through a lot of work to make these things. It's to give you a journey through the scriptures so that on a daily basis, in a disciplined way, you can cry out to God to break into your life with a fresh outpouring of His Spirit. You can, so that on a daily basis, you can get in the garden of Scripture. You can seek for the pearl of great price, Christ Himself, and you can plead with God, do not leave me alone. You can beg God to graciously interfere with your life and break into all of your selfish behavior patterns and to shatter your self-centered pursuits and to soften your heart. And what happens when you do that? What happened to those people who heeded the call of God and went out into the wilderness? What did they do there? What happens when you get quiet and you stand before God? Repent. Right? That's what they got when they got out into the wilderness. They had a very practical thing to do. Repent. It's in verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's in verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. We all want that. We all want His rule, His reign, His peace, His goodness, His love, His hope. We all want it in our lives. And then right away, Jesus says, you want this. You want the kingdom. You've got to make a straight path. You know how you make a straight path? You repent. How do we celebrate the birth of Christ? How do we prepare for that celebration and for Christ to be born in our own lives and in our own church? How do we clear the obstacles? How do we make a straight path? We do it the same way Israel did it. We prepare for that same unsafe Christ to be birthed again in our hearts by repentance. So I'm challenging you. To make a practical daily discipline for Advent. To enter the wilderness of solitude. And to let yourself be brought naked and defenseless into the center of that dread. Where you stand alone before God. In nothingness, without explanation, without theories, without excuses. Completely dependent on Him. In dire need. Of the gift of his grace and his mercy and of faith. And while you stand there, repent. Now, what does it mean to repent? It means for us the same, it meant for Israel. It means you take sin seriously. Look, on a certain level, it's nice to forget about sin. It's nice to just go right on through your life. But that's devastating. Forgetting about your sin is like being under the influence of a spiritual narcotic. Ignoring your sin, it's like tranquilizing and disorienting your soul. In other words, repenting... I'm not trying to get us to grovel in our guilt. I'm saying that we need to face our guilt so that in God's gracious presence, we can confess 
And what happens after repentance? Forgiveness. Now for the next few minutes, I'm going to do something I did a year ago. We need to do it again. I'm going to walk through the seven deadly sins. Just to prime the pump of your life. These are the sins that the church has identified for centuries as the root sins. Now the reason I'm doing this is because if you and I are going to be serious about our preparation for Christ, in the days ahead, I want to challenge you to do two things. Get alone with God, read Scripture, and repent. And here's a very good way to repent. Take this sheet that's in all of your worship guides. If you didn't get one, um, we missed your worship guide. There's some more in the, on the table. Take this sheet and in the days ahead, take time on a regular basis, every day if you can, to sit before God in prayer, reading through this sheet, and letting God direct your thoughts to the sin that's in your life so that you can confess it, clear it up and get it out of the way. So let's just walk through this. Pride, sinful pride. Not, not the, the proper satisfaction for, you have for achieving you know, some sort of excellence. We use pride in different ways and it gets slippery. But sinful pride is the pride that makes you an enemy of God. God says he will resist you. Have you ever seen football? Guys running to make a tackle. The guy with the ball stiff arms. God will stiff arm you. No matter how religious you are. No matter how many offerings you've given. No matter how much you're reading the Bible or going to church or giving tithes. He will stiff arm you and you'll do that flippy thing backwards. If there's pride in your life. It comes in two basic forms. Outward and inward. Outward pride. This shows up in the form of narcissism, vanity. I never hear anybody talking about vanity anymore. You know, a parents, if your teenager is staring in the mirror, you need to name it for what it is. It's vain. It's vanity. And if you're a vain person, if you're constantly staring at yourself and thinking of yourself, you're vain. And you need to repent. <coughs> Conceit, arrogance, snobbery, irreverence is an outward form of pride. Disobedience, the refusal to admit and acknowledge your failures. Saying you're sorry to your spouse. Parents, do you ask your children to forgive you? Are you too proud for that? Inward pride, it shows up in the form of distrust. Cynical and skeptical people, often the real issue is the idolatry of pride. You can't bring yourself to trust anybody else. Perfectionism is another way that pride manifests itself. Sentimentality. Presumption. The second of the seven deadly sins is envy. This is the last of the Ten Commandments. A friend of mine says it's actually the gateway to all Ten Commandments. That when, you, when you're envious, it leads to all the others. And that the Ten Commandments are really rules for a good neighborhood. And think about how envy will destroy and lead to all of those other commandments being broken in a neighborhood. See, the heart of envy is being dissatisfied with who God made you to be. And so you have this suspicion that God is withholding what you deserve and he's giving it to someone else. It's when you wish that you were smarter than this other person or richer or more beautiful. Envy is when you get upset at another person's success or happiness. So we have to tell our children all the time. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Somebody got a great present? Rejoice with them. Parents, you need to name this for what it is. This is envy. And adults, we, we have it just as grossly as our children do. We just cloak it and camouflage it. Malice is a, is a form of envy. It's when I wish ill for others and I delight in their pain. In contempt, this is the form that envy takes when I heap scorn on someone else's virtues and abilities. If you've been through a divorce, Satan is going to do everything he can to get this into your life. Anger, for some people, the sin of anger comes in the form of rage. That's easy. He's an angry guy. You know, the guy screaming and shooting at everything. (laughs) But for others, anger is more low-key. It's more like resentment. That's anger. It's just a low-grade form of it. St. Augustine identified another form of anger as pugnacity, which is a lovely word. It's when you're combative and quarrelsome and rude. Pugnacious people, you need to repent. If If you're combative and quarrelsome and rude, you see the worst in every situation. Sometimes anger shows up in the form of retaliation or paranoia, gluttony. The overindulgence of the body's appetites, especially food and drink. It goes like this. If a little is good, a lot will always be better, right? If a couple of glasses of wine are good, well, seven must be better. Gluttony is ultimately addiction to pleasure. It's not only about pleasure, though. Lust, the sexual libido is part of God's good creation. But like other gifts, it's been broken. And it shows up in the form of unchastity. Now, unchastity is any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. It shows up in the form of immodesty. Look, every culture has different rules for what is modest, right? But in every culture, immodesty and sexual immorality go together. There's no universal rule for modesty. But immodesty in any given culture is is dressing in a way that because of the way that culture functions, it stimulates sexual desire. Prudery, this is on the opposite end, right? It's the fear and condemnation of sex and sexuality. That's a form of sexual sin. And lust can show up in all kinds of other perverted ways. Number six, greed. The medieval church called it avarice. It's the inordinate pursuit of wealth and material things, whether it's by honest or dishonest means. You can be a greedy person following all the laws. Inordinate ambition. It's a lust for power and status. The person who's ruthlessly competitive. Prodigality. This is a form of greed. It comes from the prodigal son, that that story in the Bible. It's greed in the form of wastefulness. And extravagance, living beyond your means, failing to pay your debts, spending on unnecessary things while others go without. The pursuit of pleasure and comfort at the expense of the natural environment. Another form of greed is on the opposite end. It's stinginess. This is when we hoard money. Either... Because we're afraid God might die tomorrow and our needs won't be met. Or because we're obsessed with security and image. Hey, the seventh 
deadly sin, sloth, laziness at its core. I love this definition. It is the refusal to respond to opportunities for growth. See, you can be lazy, but be making it in our culture. It's the refusal to respond to opportunities for growth and service and sacrifice. There are people who are giving up enormous chunks of their discretionary time in order to help our church look good. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to do that, but I'm saying there might be some people in the room who have not done anything to serve their church because you're lazy and you should repent. Now, I'm not saying that's everybody. And I'm not saying you need to spend all your time at the church building, but you do need to examine your motives. You do need to figure out what's going on with you. It shows up on the spiritual side when you don't attend to your spiritual life. You see, some of you might be tempted by sloth during this season of Advent to not vigorously go into the wilderness. You've got a great... The table has been set for all of us to go on a tremendous journey together with God. A whole group of people disciplining ourselves in the discipline of solitude and then arriving at Christmas Day and singing joy to the world. The Lord has come together. Look, if you go on the journey of Advent, I promise when we unleash joy to the world on Christmas Day, it will be powerful in your life. We neglect... It shows up in our families when we neglect our family responsibilities or when we focus only on the more pleasant and enjoyable task and leave the others to someone else. Sometimes sloth shows up in the form of superficial busyness. You know what busyness is? It's really laziness because you're too lazy to make the hard call on what you won't do. So you are lazily a victim of whatever floats by and gets your attention. That's laziness. But real, you know, you don't ever encounter Jesus in a hurry. And he had more to do than you and I. He had to start something that needed to last 2,000 years. He had three years to do it. He had to do this whole teaching that everybody was confused about. But anytime somebody encounters him, he's fully present. And he's fully available. Because he wasn't lazy. Lazy people are either laying on their couches or... They're running around busy like a chicken with its head cut off. But both are lazy. We commit sloth in the form of indifference to issues of justice and injustice. Cowardliness is a form of sloth. There's many marriages that are being ruined because instead of risking the pain or or rejection of having a confrontation, you just refuse to deal with situations. Cowardliness is a form of laziness. Now, there's the printout for you. I encourage you. Look, don't try to kill the fatty calf all in one day, okay? We, this, is the long, this season's Advent is the longest Advent can be, 28 days. It cannot be any longer. It's a different number of days every year. This is the maximum. You've got these days to make the long, slow walk. Now, the whole reason our church exists, the purpose for the Church of Incarnation... Is to embody God's kingdom and to be God's agents, establishing, working with Him for His kingdom. And to do that, Christ has to be birthed more fully in our own hearts, in our own lives. Let's pray.